Welcome to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. These in-depth, pro-to-pro investing conversations feature Hedgeye CEO Keith McCullough going deep with some of the smartest investors from around the world. We encourage you to visit our website, Hedgeye.com, to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. You can also follow us on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. Now, let's get to a real conversation. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with one of my favorites, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite authors, uh, certainly one of my favorite people to have on a Real Conversation, Jim Rickards. Thank you for joining us again. We appreciate that. Great to be with you, Keith. I, uh, I miss being in your uh, studio because you have a first-rate operation there, but I'm glad we can do it this way. Well, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. The first, um, the actual operation that we're going to talk about first, uh, quite an operation it is, and you have a lot more experience uh, with the people that run this operation than 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 I have or ever uh, will want to have. Um, and I, I think by having this discussion and many more, I'll, I'll bar myself from ever having the chance of changing that. <laughs> but you know, you've been inside, and and I wonder, uh, Jim, Jim, just how fucked up is the Federal Reserve? Well, uh, it's extremely uh, grossly incompetent. They, they literally don't know what they're doing, but it's worse than that because you can be bad at what you do. You can be incompetent, uh, but what's worse is if you don't know it. It's one thing if you're really bad at something. You're like, well, I'm not too good at this. I better be careful. But if you think you've got it and you don't, and you don't know that you don't, then you're just going to commit one blunder after another. I think that's how I would describe the Fed. But, uh, but yeah, I've had you know one-on-one conversations with uh, – um, you know, Ben Bernanke and uh, other governors and, you know, his partners with a couple of vice chairs and I've had other conversations, uh, can't necessarily mention by name, may out of respect for the individuals, but um, uh, ultimate insiders, I'll, I'll put it that way, real ones. And what they tell you privately is, is, is shocking. And uh, um, one person said, uh, yeah, but again, I say person, uh, this is somebody who practically sits, uh, you know, shares a desk with, with Jay Powell, but also the last two chairmen before that. And he said, the dots are a joke. He said, we wish we'd never started them. Um, we can't get out of it now because the expectations are too high. Everyone, and what would CNBC talk about if they didn't have dots? Um, but, uh, he said they're, they're a joke. He said they're, uh, you know, cause it's just a way to include non-voting members of the FOMC in the discussion. You get to put your dots up there. I said, they're all guesses. And so when you average them, which is what they do on, you know, financial TV, you're averaging a bunch of bad guesses. It's one thing if they were all kind of good at it and you take an average, that makes some sense. But if they're all bad at it, they have the worst forecasting record of any institution I can think of. So you got all these wild, crazy guesses with no foundation, usually wrong by orders of magnitude. And then you average them. I don't know what that is, but, uh, but they, but, but my point is inside the Fed, they're, they're regarded as a joke. So when you, when you learn stuff like that, you're just like, okay, fine. Uh, I get it, but I, I've got better things to do. There are other uh, much more powerful, much more meaningful indicators that you should spend your time trying to understand rather than, you know, I mean, I, I did read, I do read FOMC minutes. I have to admit it, but, uh, I don't get much out of them. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it's just kind of the anti, uh, the antichrist of what you and I do. I mean, uh, Mandelbrot taught us, of course, and, and anyone who looks at the world on a nonlinear basis or fractally for that matter would never look at the average of things. I mean, you're looking at particular things that happen at particular right. times, uh, that matter in risk space or economic, uh, economically. And, you know, I, I just, I think we're at the point though, where I think most people, to your point, including themselves when you have them offline, no, they have no idea how to now cast, forecast, or otherwise with any accuracy that anyone would depend on with their life, never mind uh, the country's lifeline, which is, or at least according to them, they think there's a lifeline. Um, right. So, so, so I, get, I, I guess, I mean, we, we have what we have, and we're not going to get away from that. What about, like, where we're at now, where they're getting worse at a faster rate? Like, we're getting to the point where the latest of late cycle indicators are worth what they're perceived to be making um, the next policy move on, but everyone knows they won't because they'll blow up the world if they do it, and if they don't do it, they still have to be data dependent, which is to say that they are, but they're they're late. Like, like what right. do you think about that? Um, the I think I guess what concerns me when I look at risk factors, to me the biggest risk factor right now is the Fed actually will move, and of course it will be at the worst possible time. So the so data that we can rely on, data that has a very long 
ability to predict markets in advance, not the stock market. The stock market, you know, I want to say the stock market looks forward. And, well, it does look forward, but it always gets it wrong. The stock market did not see the 2020 crash coming. They did not see the 2008 crash coming, did not see the, um, the 2000 dot-com crash coming. The, the stock market misses every uh, major drawdown. Now, is there a market that gets it right? Yes, the bond market. Uh, the, when I say bond market, I mean the U.S. Treasury market, particularly the 10-year Treasury note. The 10-year Treasury note yielded maturity peaked uh, in March at 1.745%. Today, it's down around 1.21, you know, give or, give or take a basis point. That's a big drop. I mean, you know, yep. this, this audience understands that uh, 50 basis points at that level, when, when you're at when a low level to begin with, given the DBO1, the, the dollar value of each basis point, that's like an earthquake. So what is the bond market telling you? It's telling you there's no inflation. They're worried about recession. I'm not forecasting a recession, but they're at least thinking about it. The economy is slowing. That's what the bond market is telling you loud and clear. Why on earth would the Fed be debating, well, is it time to taper or not? And then, um, and by the way, people say, well, you know, tapering's not tightening because they're still buying some. No. I mean, if you're going to 70 miles an hour in a car and you hit the brakes, the car doesn't stop immediately. It keeps going, but, yet, but it's deaccelerating and you hit the brakes. So yeah. when you taper, you are tightening. Um, because yes, you're buying. I believe, in the dynamic system, everything happens at the margin. Okay, so you don't have to go to zero taper and then raise rates before you're tightening. When you taper a little bit, you're tightening. Now, maybe it's slowly, maybe it's gradually, maybe it's suddenly. But why are they tightening when the bond market is telling you loud and clear that the economy is slowing, which it is, and there are, there are many, many other indicators. Um, and you know, just not to paint with too broad a brush, I don't have a lot of. Uh, confidence in anything coming out of the Board of Governors in Washington, but there are these little pockets of the Fed that, that get some things right. The Atlanta Fed GDP now, now cast is pretty good. It's not perfect. It, it misses sometimes, but it actually gets the direction right. Now, you go back to um, April uh, and look at the, the second quarter forecast, and now, of course, we're well into the third quarter. That number has gone from 13% to 11%, 10%. They were 7.5% the day second quarter GDP came out. The GDP printed at uh, 6.5. Uh, now they're at 5.1 for the third quarter. Well, first of all, that tells you right there that the economy is slowing enormously. But it's worse than that because uh, a lot of people don't understand how Atlanta does that. They, you know, Wall Street just, there's a whole bunch of data that goes into GDP. They have some, they don't have others. So they do estimates of the others and they get those wrong. But that's their forecast. What Atlanta does is they say, well, what would it be if we just had the data we have now? In other words, we're not going to guess at the blanks. We know there are blanks. This is going to be updated, so it's a little more Bayesian in that sense. But what would it be just based on what we know now? And then they update it, and that's what a good Bayesian technique does. Well, if you're at 5.1%, here we are. Two uh, two-thirds of the third quarter is done, right? Well, if you're at 5.1% and you started at 7.5%, that means it's even worse today because 5.1% is the annualized expected average for the third quarter. Okay. But you got to be worse than that today in order for that to be the average, considering you started at 7.5. So again, it, it's worse than 5.1. That's just their estimated average, but it's worse than that now. So, um, and the San Francisco Fed, uh, has done some good research on the impact of COVID. We can talk about that, you know, the pandemic, if you like. But so, yeah, there are little pockets, but you got to go, you got to hunt for them because uh, the stuff coming out of Washington is just nonsense. Yeah, I use, um, I always compare our nowcast because what they're doing, like to your point, is nowcasting. They're doing it differently, to be clear. They're not using a good hardcore stochastic process where you're constantly, again, using the rate of change and the impact of each data point's um, marginal rate of change. There's, there's lots of rates of change to put into the rates of change. We've studied their model. Um, but on slide, um, you can see what Jim just said there on slide 13. Uh, Jim is indeed, as, as, as he uh, often is in calling out a subtle point, but an important one is that, well, for, they're, they're lower than us, um, but both of our numbers have come down. Um, right. And that's that is what it is. I, I guess you know the bond market though. Look, if it, I'm focusing the eyes on the red bar, that's the Atlanta Fed um, number. But really, the bond market. I mean, I mean, this is my question for you, and this has nothing to do with the Fed because I don't care what the Fed thinks about this. I just have to front run the Fed. Um, you know, right. the, the 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 second by the second quarter of next year, you know, the growth rates uh, of both growth and inflation are going to collapse. So. Bond market's pretty good at looking ahead six, you know, 12, maybe let's call it, let's say three to six months ahead at least, uh, yep. maybe maybe 12. And my question is, in the meantime, 
as you well know, there's sticky stagflation that's late in, late cycle there. Um, so I, I'm positioned for stagflation, stagflation, but then I'll position, I'll go from stagflation to deflation. Um, as, as you know, and as um, uh, our friend Frank in Toronto and the Toronto Star today did a nice job at least um, taking uh, some of the big components of your views, you know, you know, he put it out there as well. You're like, longer term, this is basically the Jim Rickards deflation case, is that you can have cyclical inflations, but you're going to come back to the deflation. What, what, is, it, what is the chance that you get a 1970s-style stagflation that actually sticks, though, and, and I'm wrong on that, and we don't get the deflation? Yeah, I think you'll, you'll see the stag part, the stagnation, which I would describe as the economy slowing. I think right. that's very clear. There's, there's tons of data on that. Um, and, yeah, and part of it's the Delta variant, but I wouldn't, yeah, that's a serious disease and it's, it's fatal in some cases. Part of it's Delta, but I wouldn't uh, chalk it off to Delta. There, there are plenty of evidence that the economy is slowing for a lot of other reasons. Savings rates are high, what they call precautionary savings, you know, saving for a rainy day, if you want to put it that way. Like, it, you know, over the past year and a half, they've been at historically high levels. It's come down a little bit, but it's still, uh, still way above average. There's a reason for that. Um, uh, you know, this whole thing of a labor shortage, there is no labor shortage. Now, it is true, uh, you know, you go to a restaurant and the first thing the waiter comes up and apologizes and say, look, it's going to take an hour to get your entree because we're short of help in the, in the mm-hmm. kitchen. And you can, you see that, you know, every, every retail place you go to and you see that everywhere. So people have interpreted that as a labor shortage implying inflation's right around the corner. It's not. The problem is that they, they, uh, you don't have enough applicants that you've got a pool of maybe 15 million, the number is not clear, but look at declining labor force participation, um, number of people getting unemployment benefits, extended unemployment, et cetera. You've got a pool of 15 million prime age workers. I'm talking 25 to 54, not, you know, uh, uh, you know, 65 year olds. You can, you can work when you're 65. That's fine. But, um, but I'm talking about that prime demographic who are not working. Now they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for jobs. Why not? Well, um, because they, you know, they're, they're getting uh, government benefits left and right. Um, and meanwhile, the employers want help, but they can't pay the clearing wage, meaning you could get the help if you, if you pay enough money, but they can't because they'll go broke because their, their volumes are down. So, so this so-called labor shortage isn't really a labor shortage. It's much more disinflationary, which is the, it's the inability of employers to pay a clearing wage and the unwillingness of workers to come back into the workforce because the government's handing them all kinds of checks. So that's that's very very different than a, a true labor shortage, um, and and it's not it's not inflationary because when they do come back, you know, when the unemployment benefits run out, uh, I think this week, yep. uh, the, they've been going out gradually state by state, but the, the last few states are all going to you know basically September first it all goes away. Um, and that'll bring more people back into the workforce. And then you're going to see the unemployment rate go up uh, because you're, you're expanding the denominator, uh, not expanding the numerator necessarily. So, uh, so th- I don't, I don't. There isn't really a labor shortage. There's an inability to get people out of wage you can afford to pay. That's that's a much more disinflationary, depressionary statistic. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of others. I mean, we talk about basic. Well, people wear base effects. The base effects are about to run off. Uh, you know, when you, because the Fed looks at core PCE year over year, I mean, you know, 15 different measures of inflation, but that's the one they look at. So if you want to front run the Fed, you've got to look at it yourself because it's, it's telling them what to do. Uh, well, year over year. So April, May, June, even July were hot. Okay. But where were we in April, May, June, July, 2020? Mm-hmm. The worst economic collapse since 1946. Uh, and in some ways going back to the Great Depression. So, uh, and prices were dropping and the economy was shut down at least for a couple, a uh, couple of months. Um, so how much of that accounts for the inflation numbers we saw? Well, it's hard to know because base effects are, are, are rare, actually. You don't, they're not usually that big. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to untangle, but the best estimates I've seen are about half. So those five, six percent numbers were really, you know, two and a half, three, which is not too far from where we've been for, for the, um, the 10, the 11 years from 2009 to 2020, which is, you know, around 1.8, 1.9. And we're, so we're going to fall back to that very quickly. So I just don't see, uh, I just don't see the inflation. That's what, that's what the bond market's saying. That's what the labor market is saying. Um, the, the government handouts are about to run off. So, um, yeah, we saw some, uh, 
some uh, you know good uh, good growth uh, in retail sales earlier this year. Well, sure. I mean, in December, uh, the last days of the Trump administration, they handed out uh, I believe it was a a six hundred dollar check. Uh, and then Biden comes in, and in February they handed out I think it was a fourteen hundred, maybe sixteen hundred dollar check. So yeah, you get those checks, and uh, people spend it, uh, some of it anyway, and that's a boost to retail. So that's over. There, there's nothing even in Nancy Pelosi's three point five trillion dollar spending extravaganza. There's no provision there for another round of checks. Uh, so you start to pull that kind of support away. You start to take the base effects away. You look at the slowing metrics we talked about. Um, you're, you're back down to that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe 2.2% growth, maybe lower and, you know, 1.6% core inflation. Yeah, the, um, you know, their definitions of inflation, <laughs> we did this exercise. You might get, get a kick out of this guy's pop up uh, slide 59 where we took Every way that anybody at the Fed, all the way to the to the last place you'll ever want to work, which is the Cleveland Fed, um, their definition of inflation. You know, so the Cleveland PCE, the P, you know, the P, uh, the the, the Cleveland, Cleveland CPI, the the yeah, you know what and me, you know, like it's all there. I mean, it's like, right. you know, just for people that don't know what Jim was talking about, like in terms of base effects, the base effects are really easy when that color on the page is red, the dates are there, and it's you know the this. The acceleration inflation are really green when you lap against those numbers. And that's, you know, that's really my question about this, the, the stagnation you called it or the stagflation of it all. Cause by nature, you know, prices that have inflated, they take a little while, uh, to come unglued. But by Q2 of next year, it's mathematically impossible that those green numbers aren't going pink back to red. And, you know, if, if they go to 2.2, or, or 1.6, that's not the point. It's like you said this at the outset, it's getting the rate of change in the direction right. So here you have a Fed. Let's just play this forward. I mean, and, and again, this is a career from now for me, Jim, in terms of trading it, by the way. Um, yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, really, I can't set up for, I'm, I'm long quad three. That's when you, you buy you know, a narrowing list of mega caps, things that can actually grow through it, because the real growth underneath the hood here is starting to slow. Um, right. But, but, but if, if, if I go to the next career move or whatever, which is Q2 of 2022, you got guys like Bullard and whoever now Kaplan's jumped in there. They want it's it's not just tapering. It's like giving you guidance on a rate hike in that quarter of next year. Correct. So the Fed can't forecast uh, three weeks <laughs> accurately. <laughs> so why 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 do we think they know what's going to happen in 2022? I mean, you you have a better handle on it. I hope I have a better handle on it. I know the Fed does not. <laughs> Um, you, uh, Keith, here's a real, real easy exercise. So every year the Fed does a one-year forward forecast. Do it every year. So 2009 they forecast 2010, 2010 they forecast 2011, etc. Look at that time series, that annual one-year forward forecast. They're wrong every time by orders of magnitude. Meaning, uh, you know, going back to the last recovery, 2009, you know, 2010, they'd say 3.3 and it would come out 2.1. You know, if they said 3.3 and it came out 3.1, I would say, hey, nice, nice going. You stuck the landing. That's really, really close. <laughs> but they're off by like a full percentage point, which is, which is in, in a world that only goes between negative four and plus four, pretty much. If you're off by a full point. That's an order of magnitude and they have been. So why would we listen to anything they say? Yeah. Well, I, the, the problem is we have to. And this is the next part of the discussion I want to get into. And this is like, you know, how fucked up it is. Like, I basically spend every waking hour, like, doing my job, but every incremental hour that I speak to institutional investors, which you do too, trying to explain how, not, not what my nowcast is, which is far more accurate than anything they'll ever build. It's how to front run behavior that they may or may not have. That's where we're at with monetary policy. I, right. I don't know like how you'd say it any other way, and it, it's getting increasingly more difficult. Because, again, you would never bet on their forecast, but now I have to bet on the behavior of their wrong forecast, which is, you know. Right. Well, if they, so the way it's set up right now, there's um, a Fed meeting in September, and the one after that is November. And they, right. looking at the last FOMC meeting, they dropped as many hints as they could. They sprinkled them all over the place because they don't want to surprise anybody that they're going to start to taper in November. And again, you'll have your Wall Street economists saying, well, that's not tightening. Yes, it is for the reason I mentioned. So, so they're going to start tightening in November. Now, what Jay Powell, if he has one thing going for him, is the fact that he's not an economist. He's a lawyer. And it doesn't mean he understands monetary economics, what we're talking about. But lawyers 
do tend to be a little bit pragmatic. So maybe he'll get it, but I can't count on that. They've, they've said basically they're going to start the taper in um, November. They're going to uh, probably cut treasuries and mortgages at the same tempo. You know, one's more than the other, but they're kind of scaling back. They'll do it at every meeting, you know, maybe 10% of the total um, per meeting for the next eight meetings, et cetera. That, it's just it's just playing the tape in reverse. You know, they, they go, uh, first they cut rates to zero, then they do QE. And then when they have to reverse it, they, they do the quantitative tightening or the tapering first, and then they do the rate hike. So they play the movie in reverse. Um, they're probably going to start that in November. I don't think, I'm not sure, that the data by November is going to convince them otherwise. I mean, it will be the worst possible move at the worst possible time. And Powell's enough of a pragmatist. And by the way, he got really badly burned in 2018. I mean, between October 1st and the Christmas Eve massacre in 2018, the stock market dropped almost 20% because mm-hmm. they had over-tightened and there was a little liquidity crisis behind the curtain in mid, mid-September. mid So he, he, he learned his lesson there, hopefully. But it looks like they're going to fly right into that buzzsaw once again. Um, and so that's what concerns me is that the economy is weakening. The bond market is telling us that. There are other indicators telling us that. Um, and and uh, but they're gonna they're not looking at that. They're looking at the unemployment rate, which doesn't mean anything because of labor force participation. Um, and they're they're gonna actually start to taper in November, which is what I would expect right now. And that's gonna be the worst possible move. Well, I, 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 first of all, I agree with 100% of what you just said, which, you know, you and I obviously don't always um, you know, say that to each other. Uh, that would be ridiculous. Um, but, you know, he did learn from that mistake. And again, going back to how we would have character, we characterized it, we said, look, the peak of the cycle is Q3 of 2018. He's going to taper in. You're, they're going to tighten into a slowdown in Q4. They did. They damn well blew up the world. He's on right. the linoleum floor by Christmas time, and he quickly. Um, adheres to his private equity backing. You know, now, like the market in August, the middle of August was trading like what I would call quad four deflation. The dollar was looking like it wanted to break out, not looking, it wasn't like a, it was an optical illusion. The thing was going up. You, you finally start to deflate some of the, the ongoing commodity inflation. And Powell took, you know, took, and Bullard, you did, different people are saying, hey, look, it's time, it's time to go. And he, he, he looked like he learned from that mistake. He said, I'm not going to Jackson Hole in person. We're going to do it via Zoom. And he came in as dovish on the margin, as definitely more dovish than I or the market would have expected. And, and I think, to me, that's because he didn't want to do it. He did in Q4 of 18. Uh, one, do you agree with that? And two, why would he do it? Why would he do it again in November, even though we both think, he, think that he will? Um, it's a really good question. There's, there's sort of an institutional momentum. I mean, yeah, you look at the FOMC minutes. Um, you know, I, I, I've been in the, the boardroom down there. Um, there's like 45 people in the room. It's not, it's not just the voting members of the FOMC. Like, they got chairs all around the edges and the whole table's filled up and probably standing room only. So there are like 45, 50 people in the room, um, including some, some people I speak to. And, uh, um, so there's, there's an enormous, uh, don't underestimate the power of consensus, um, the difficulty of, being out of consensus, if it's all leaning a certain way, the institutional bias, um, you know, we don't have to get into the whole, you know, behavioral psychology, cognitive bias thing, but they're, they're using bad models. You use bad models, you get bad results every single time. They'll be very consistent that way. And fortunately, we haven't heard about the Phillips curve since Janet Yellen left, but they, <laughs> there's still a part of them that thinks that a declining unemployment rate has inflationary potential. That's what the Phillips curve says. It's empirically wrong. Uh, but lots of evidence for that, but uh, they still stick to it. Um, and they've got this residual fear of inflation, and uh, there's just enough data, mostly base effects, mostly COVID bounce back. Uh, and, you know, Keith, you mentioned, um, you know, 40 different ways to think about inflation, and that's, that's correct. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of what's called the trimmed mean. That's where they just, they, I think the Dallas Fed does the trimmed mean. So they say, well, what would inflation be if we threw out the highest ones and the lowest ones? And to me, that's sometimes that's junk because, well, no, they're, they're real. You can't just throw away the stuff you don't like. But if it's the case that the inflation is heavily concentrated in one or two uh, uh, subcategories and they're not likely to be recurring, then the, the trim mean carries a little more weight with me than it, than it might otherwise. Uh, and it's, this is basically automobiles. And we started out with used cars, uh, cause you couldn't get new cars. And now it's 
flipped over to new cars. You can't, and they're, they're very hard to get. Uh, and the reason is not because they don't have any sheet metal or glass, it's because semiconductors. Your, your automobile is a computer on wheels. I mean, yeah, I, I learned to you know, fix a carburetor with a screwdriver when I was stuck on the side of the road, you know, 40 years ago, but the cars don't have carburetors today. Um, the point being, uh, they're, they're really com- heavily computerized. And if you can't get semiconductors, you can't make cars. Well, that's easing up. Uh, but so much of the inflation is in just automobiles and yep. one or two other things, but it's not, it's not broad based. So if it's not broad based and you can see, you know, kind of the end of the, the bottleneck, which you can, then you would not extrapolate that. And, uh, but, but they feel that institutionally they've had to respond to it. And, um, I wrote a long article and, you know, kind of wrapped around, uh, uh, uh the, uh, Robert Schiller's uh, book, Narrative Economics. And, you know, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. I used to recommend my own books. I still do, but but I'll recommend that one. And uh, Narrative Economics, I mean, I've always used it in one fashion or another. You know, we call it anecdotal evidence or whatever. I've always put a lot of weight on it. Most uh, mainstream economists do not because it's not highly empirical, but you can model it. And he actually took the, the epidemiology model, which we've all had to learn because of the COVID and brought it over to economics, did a good job of that yeah. uh, because the whole idea of, you know, infection, exponential functions and all that is all true. Uh, but the one thing I got out of that book was that um, I focused so much on being correct. You're getting your facts right. If you want to put it that way. Uh, he said, narratives don't have to be true. <laughs> a narrative, if enough people believe it, um, it can be completely false and it can drive markets. And yeah. I said, ah, that's interesting. Cause I'm always looking for, like facts, but what if the narrative is driving the market and the narrative is false? It doesn't matter. It still drives the market. So we've had this inflation narrative for about six or eight months, and it's very powerful. It's taking stocks higher, and I think it's coming back to your point. It's influencing Fed behavior and Fed analysis. It's empirically false, but it doesn't matter because it's there. It's going to take a, a two by four to the forehead to, to get them to change. But my my concern is that they actually will start the taper in November. They'll be institutionally bound to continue it. The implications of reversing course are huge, so so there'll be all kinds of institutional impediments, but but it'll just be the wrong thing at the wrong time, as usual. Well, they're um, they're uh, very concerned, and you would be too, uh, I think. You can tell me if uh, if I'm right or wrong on that. I'm just trying to remember what slide I have this in terms of um, inflation. Like if you look at uh, slide 56, inflation expectations three years ahead. This this one's been a hard one to move anywhere other than to the top of the sine curve in 20, uh, really into uh, 2018 at the peak of the cycle or the you know 2016 for that matter. It's just this rolling, boring, mean reverting. Schiller Schiller taught me mean reversion uh, as a Yale undergrad. That was the first class that made any sense to me. That's what a lot of macro data does, and most specifically inflation data. You know, going back to when deflation has you know been much more pervasive than inflation. So you get this. You know, two months, two bars, and then if you give it two or three more months, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna jump on that fish. I mean, that's that's basically what to do what you're saying. I mean, that's and and people right. have people have too. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Another guy that competes. I don't know if you if you call him your competition, but a guy that in terms of weekly voice, he writes like um, it's easy to read because there's no not a lot of numbers in it. Mike Wilson writes, you know, and he he said it this week. He said, look, you got you got to get the narratives right. And I'm like, damn, that's what pe- people, a lot of people do. They invest in narratives, not numbers. Um, right. And and I wonder, well, one, do you agree that if that were to stick, you know, the forward outlook of inflation of hum- real human beings were to stick, that that would change behavior, maybe structurally 1970 style, uh, or or two, you just think that that's gonna that's gonna collapse on itself when quad four hits or deflation hits in Q2 of next year anyway. Yeah, I think that'll tell off. I mean, yeah, the, the, the data is the data. You can have your own thesis, but you can't have your own data. That So that obviously that chart is meaningful. But to me, that's an illustration of the narrative. And, and there are other, you can use Google metrics. There are other, um, you know, uh, social media search engine type or, or search type functions where you can look at how often is it mentioned, et cetera. And they all, they all show inflation searches, inflation men- mentions, inflation, and that's the inflation narrative. So it's very powerful. People hear and they go, well, I guess there's going to be inflation. And then some pollster uh, calls up or they go online and say, well, do you expect inflation? Go, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, that's because you've just heard about it 10,000 times. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make, and again, the data. So, okay, what's the expectations? That is a 
uh, response to like a question or it's like a poll, yep. you know, who, who voted for, okay. It's an opinion. That's fine. But it's what I call soft data, not hard data. You know, like, mm-hmm. like a lot of these ISM things, they're like, what do you think is going to happen in the next six months? Well, they'll tell you, they give you an honest answer. But, it, but if they're influenced by things like narratives, it doesn't mean they're right at all. But again, the, to me, the bond market, the tenure, the yield mature on the tenure, that's hard data. It, that is what it is. And bond investors, particularly bank dealers and institutional uh, participants in the bond market, uh, can't be wrong. I mean, sometimes they are, but they, they really got to work hard to get it right. Um, it's not like the stock market where, you know, between passive investing, uh, 401ks that don't let you do anything other than the stock market, um, you know, Wall Street chatter, people like, yeah, just throw it yeah. in. And then, and then the other part of that narrative, but it's not a narrative, it's actually true. It, not just a narrative, I should say, is that, um, <laughs> some narratives are true. Yeah. You know, the, so the buy the dips, the buy the dips thing is institutionalized. That's just, yeah. And, and by the way, if you lost, uh, in the case of NASDAQ, 80% of your money between 2000 and 2002, it did eventually come back. And then if you lost, uh, 30% in 2008, it did come back starting March 09. And if you lost another 30% in March, uh, 2020, well, it's at an all time high. So th- there's something to that. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, buy and hold, buy the dip, uh, and, and, but behind that, well, so what's behind that? Well, the, what's behind that is the Fed has your back. Mm-hmm. That the Fed won't let this correct. Uh, and I've, just done a lot of research. I've done, I've done it before, but had had occasion to revisit it on um, the lender of last resort. Like, what is a lender of last resort? And that's what the Fed's supposed to be. But the theory was articulated by Walter Badgett in the mid 19th century, and it was acted out. It was actually used correctly by Pierpont Morgan in the Panic of 1907. And so, so Badgett said, you know, the role of the lender of last resort in a panic: lend freely at a punitive rate to solvent institutions. It was a three-part test. It wasn't lend freely. It was lend freely, punitive rate to solvent institutions. Okay. Mm-hmm. What did Pierpont Morgan do in the panic of 1907? Bear in mind, there was no Fed in 1907. The U.S. had no central bank. We were left by the rock. He got, there was a panic. Uh, he got the bankers in his townhouse in Mary Hill, put them in the library. But meanwhile, he took Benjamin Strong, who was later uh, uh, president of the New York Fed, and sent them to look with a team to look at all the books of all the major New York banks. And they used triage. They broke them into three categories. They said, here's a group that are, they're sound. They're going to make it through the panic. They're, they're okay. Here's another group that are, um, solvent, but illiquid. They need cash, but their assets are okay, but they need cash. They're not going to make it if they don't get cash. And here's the third category. These guys are insolvent. They're, they're broke. Okay. And they said the plan was take the sound banks, have them lend to the temporarily uh, illiquid banks that were solvent and let the other ones fail. So in other words, he used the budget formula, which is you know, lend freely from the good banks to solvent institutions, which was the middle group, um, but not to the insolvent, let them fail. So there's Badgett, there's Pierpont Morgan. And by the way, we used that model in, in 1998 when we bailed out long-term capital because that was contrary to popular belief. That was not a Fed bailout. It was, um, it was a private bailout. And, and that was our model was the panic of 1907. But what did the Fed do in 2008? And what did the Fed do in 2020? They ignored the last two rules. They, it was not a punitive rate. It was a zero rate. And they lent to the solvent and the insolvent. Right. Um, and so what it means is that nobody fails anymore. Well, if you're a retail investor, you don't need a PhD. It's like, hey, if nobody fails and I can buy the dips and it's worked three times, why not keep buying it? And then you add recursive functions, uh, index investing, passive investing. And then I keep saying, well, okay, if the active investor is like disappearing and the New York Stock Exchange specialist is gone, and I talked to head of operations there, he, he said to me, we're down the floor, you know, it's like a nice TV studio. He said, Jim, don't let anyone ever tell you there's any liquidity on this floor because there isn't. I, said, <laughs> I get that, but uh, I get it. So, so the specialist is gone. The, the, um, the active investor is gone. It's all passive. Who's, when, when the next panic hits, who's on the other side of the trade? It's one thing if you're half passive and half active. And these, these people want to make a market to these people in, a, in effect acting like the old specialist buy when everyone's selling and vice versa. But these people are gone and they pretty much are gone. And these people have to sell because you're getting redemptions and you got to sell to meet the redemptions. And that's feeding on itself. That goes down very far, very fast unless the Fed comes in. Okay. 
But how can the Fed come in now? They're at zero. They're at zero. So they can't cut. The balance sheet's seven trillion, depending on which M, you know, M zero, M one you use. It's much higher actually than M one. Um, what are you going to do? Take it to 15 trillion? I guess you could, but, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't work. That's the point. That's what the Fed already proved. The Fed proved that QE doesn't work. It was 2009 to 2020, average annual growth was 2.2%. That was the weakest recovery in U.S. history, weakest ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average recovery since 1980 uh, has been about 3.2%, a full point higher. The average recovery since 1946 is about uh, 4.5%, so uh, double, okay? So that was the weakest recovery ever significantly weaker than the post-World War II average and and a lot weaker than the post-1980 average, which is a pretty favorable period. Uh, but the Fed took the balance sheet from $800 billion to set to, uh, sorry, $4.5 at the time. So, so, multi- so increasing your balance sheet by a factor of four and, you know, all through QE, and you got the worst recovery ever, that proves that monetary policy doesn't work. It proves that QE doesn't work. And so if QE doesn't work and you're trying to tighten with tapering and you're already at zero, how exactly do you have the markets back? No, I mean, first of all, thank you, because you just gave me of the many frameworks, by the way, for those of you that haven't read any or all of uh, Jim Rickard's books, I've read them all and dog-eared them all and learned a ton from this guy. Um, You just gave me a framework to, to, to button up something I've been working on, which is, again, in this era, the three buckets you have the banks and the Federal Reserve that backs them. You know they have all the you know all the all the, the ask Jamie Dimon how much cash he's got. He's got plenty. In the middle you have have hedge funds that are solvent, but Jim they're not liquid. They're not right. liquid. And then over here you have the poor bastards selling pizza box rating reviews and stock picks. And right. all all those guys are right fucked if this thing goes the wrong way. So right. you have an interesting setup because they you know they. Like we don't need to talk about them. A lot of them are watching this, um, and and we're thankful for that. They wouldn't have known about any of what you just taught them, or or my um, interpretation of it, and how to how to think about something I'm already thinking about. But if the Fed is the go back to the if the mothership is the catalyst, and they're going to tighten, how quickly are they going to have to go to cut to get back to the to to ban- look at look at the hedge funds that have blown up this year, and it's all the same thing. Every right. single time an economic reality hits, whether it was quad three stagflation in China, blew up Bill Wong's Tiger Management Fund immediately because you shouldn't be long, you levered long consumer stocks in China when that happens, to right. coming out of the peak of the cycle in the U.S. where Captain Stockpicker dies. Quad two is great for Captain Stockpicker when growth and inflation anomaly, everything's going up. Bang, that blows up. You get multiple hedge funds blowing up that way. Um, then you get prime brokerage accounts, all this thing. They're going back to the box number one. And then you got these guys over here. They just lost a lot of money, right? These, right. these, these, the 50 to 70 million people that are in the game. So this one, Jim, this one, if they're, they're the catalyst for the whole shebang to begin with or the whole right. kit and caboodle. So they will have to turn tail. Again, we have a timeline for this. We know the economy is going to slow at a very fast rate. In the you know, in the in the second quarter of next year, I don't know if that's possible. And you have the midterms, which you and I haven't talked politics. That's not my bag, but I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, everything you just described in terms of how this is going to play out. We saw a, a, a full dress rehearsal in 2018. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Now, to his credit, Jay Powell blundered badly. But after the Christmas Eve massacre, he literally came out the day after. Who works between Christmas and New Year's? But not very many people. But Powell gave a did like a panel or something like right. that. He said, "Well, we're going to raise rates," and they did, and they did fast. Yeah. Or sorry, lower lower rates. I, I misspoke. Yeah, they, cut, uh, they had they been on, they, they raised about the two and a quarter or two and a half, and then they they took them down really fast. So uh, so that was the pragmatic side of Jay Powell. But uh, they're we're just at the beginning of this, and so uh, they're going to do that. Now we can we can make it worse. Um, uh, a couple of things. We talk about other factors, Keith, and you know exogenous factors and hedge funds blowing up, et cetera, and that is happening. Um, there was a there was a little segment. This is something I spent a lot of time on, but there's a little segment in the FOMC minutes uh, from the July meeting about um, cryptocurrencies. I mean, why is the Fed talking about cryptocurrencies? And the, and it was very uh, uh, I don't know intellectual. I don't know what it was. It was uh, they were looking at stable coins. They didn't mention Tether by name, but they were looking at stable coins and saying, you know. These stable coins, they have some of the characteristics of the money market because 
people put money into them and they think they can get it back at par dollar for dollar um but what do the people who are running it do with the money well they invest in other stuff i mean tether's trying to be transparent and they came out they said well they're like i forget the exact number but it's very high percentage of two-thirds or more in commercial paper as if we're supposed to feel comfortable with that well okay if the commercial paper issuer is um i don't know amazon i i take their credit but uh but commercial paper is you know under the uniform commercial code it's just a it's just an unsecured iou with maturity of less than uh um, uh, 365 days. So, uh, who's the issuer of the commercial paper? You now, is it an affiliate of Tether? Is it, uh, where's the <laughs> money? And, and they, we don't know. We don't know. But it's like, okay, you guys learned something from the money market collapse in 2008, maybe. But if you think that's the only problem with stable coins, if you think that these are like a close analog to money markets, uh, which at least have some SEC regulation, no, this is 10, a oh, hundred times worse. And most of the money that goes into Bitcoin comes from Tether. People go to unregulated, they buy Tether, and then they use the Tether to buy the Bitcoin. Two-thirds of the money going into Bitcoin is in Tether. Now, it starts out as dollars, but the dollars go somewhere else. So you can't unwind this. You can't play this in reverse. So just put that to what the, the Fed mentioned it, but they have no comprehension as to how bad that can be on top of everything else we're talking about. And then just to, to put a you know cherry on top of the, uh, the ice cream soda here, um, is fiscal policy, fiscal policy is impotent. You know, I know yep. we got a $3.5 trillion, uh, you know, bill right around the corner, but, um, the evidence is very good, very strong over decades, centuries, developed economies, developing economies, all economies, et cetera. And here, you know, you look to Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff that when your debt to equity rate, sorry, when your debt to GDP ratio goes past 90%, your Keynesian multiplier goes below one, mm-hmm. meaning, if you borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, you don't even get a dollar GDP. You get 90 cents or 80 cents, et cetera. And it's, it's just diminishing marginal returns. It applies to all uh, complex dynamics. So, so all the spending in the world will not uh, grow. It will not stimulate the economy. I don't know, they call it stimulus. I don't call it stimulus. It's just uh, so. So our debt to GDP ratio is now up around 130%. I said 90% was the threshold. And that's, that's what the evidence shows. We're up around 130%. Who's at that lunch table in the cafeteria? Who's sitting at your lunch table? Lebanon, Greece, and Italy. Ah. That, that, there, there's, there's your, there's your four top, right? Okay. That's where the United States is. We always like to make fun of Spain or France because they're like socialists. Their debt to GDP ratios are much lower than ours. They, they have their own problems. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, but, uh, we're, we're with uh, Lebanon, Greece, and, uh, and, and Italy. So, um, so, 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 fiscal policy doesn't work. Uh, for the reason I mentioned, monetary policy doesn't work because of a velocity. We haven't really talked about that, but that's a psychological phenomenon that they can't control. Um, and then we got this recursive function of stock market, which just keeps going up for the reasons we mentioned. Um, this is a, this is a nice setup for, um, something we haven't seen before. Yeah. In the back of our, of, of our, our research, we always have the four pillars of, of those structural economic risks, whether it be your debts, your deficits, uh, fully loaded with the fiscal policy and the political party running it. And, and what I, what I found is, you know, we've been you know, running Hedgeline for 14 years is that no matter what the government is doing, it doesn't matter till the shit is hitting the fan economically and from a market perspective. Then, right. then it's an issue. Then it's an issue. And, and this is really, again, when you really play this out in terms of, my timing and yours, your thoughts here is, is super helpful. You know, you're, you're lined up with the midterms. You're making a policy mistake in front of it that gets more people losing money, not just hedge funds and Wall Street, at the same time ahead of them going to vote for what's next. And that's, yeah. um, you know, I know you have some thoughts on it. I didn't want to spend, in fact, I only want to kind of spend, <laughs> if you don't mind, one, well, one question yeah, on it. I, but they're like, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a something something going on out there that not everyone is particularly happy about politically, obviously, and some people are, but um, I just give you a, a, a shot at that. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the first rule of politics is uh, a week is a lifetime, you know, so sitting here 15 months ahead of the 2022 elections, uh, you've you got to qualify everything you say by that. Having said that, uh, the setup for Republican control of the House is very good. Never underestimate the ability of Republicans to screw things up, but uh, <laughs> assuming they restrain themselves, uh, they should take the House. We're talking about five votes. I mean, Pelosi is having to, like, you know, uh, threaten to move people's offices to the to the basement just to get a vote on this $3.5 trillion. So she'll get it, but uh, 
but she's, she can only afford to lose five votes. The Republicans could pick up you know, 20, 30 seats, maybe more. That's By the way, that's typical for a first midterm on a new president. But uh, there are a lot of factors pushing that way. And they could take the Senate, for that matter. And then, you know, the, the big wild card, and it's an interesting one, is um, this Gavin Newsom recall, right? So um, the polls are kind of close, 50-50, which means that Newsom's probably in trouble because the polls skew to favor the the Democrats. So if, if they're admitting 50-50, I take it that he's underwater. Um, and the way it's a two-part uh, ballast, the first one is, should you recall the governor? If you say yes, uh, no, 50% say yes, he's out. But the second part is, well, assuming he's out, who do you vote for for governor? It's a two-part thing. But with the other thing, there are like 20-some candidates uh, and, you, and a plurality wins. You don't need 50%. It's not like uh, Georgia, one of these, you know, they call jungle primaries. You just need a, a simple plurality. And right now, Larry Elder's ahead. So what are the odds that you get a Republican governor in California in two weeks? Well, pretty good right now. That would mm. be, uh, that would be a reasonable bet. And sad to say, Dianne Feinstein is probably suffering you know, more, um, you know, signs of age, to put it kindly, uh, than the president, which is, uh, they're both in trouble. So if she's got to step aside and the Republican governor picks the replacement and all of a sudden Mitch McConnell's Senate majority leader and, um, uh, that you don't have to wait till 2022 for that. That could happen in uh, between now and then. So, um, so with Republicans poised to take control and the, the leadership of the White House kind of MIA, um, it doesn't mean that the Republicans get everything they want. It, it does mean that the, the, the United States is in even more turmoil, more uncertainty than we are already. And of course, markets hate that. Mark, you, people can, you know, seasoned investors can deal with bull markets and bear markets, but nobody can deal with uncertainty. And the way you cut through uncertainty is with really good forecasting models, which is what you do and what I do. Um, but, um, but that's, that's a real headwind to, uh, to markets in general. Yeah, this. Um, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go to the Q Q and A. It's a good segue to that because this actually surprises me that this is the second highest voted question. Like our um, subscribers are voting up and down questions, and and it, it's a political question. Um, so I'll ask it first, and then I'm going to ask the obvious questions I haven't asked about, which are China and gold specifically. That's number one. But the second highest rated question: um, How would you describe Jim this Build Back Better or Great Reset agenda anyway? Uh, well, you know, build back better is a, a slogan. Um, you know, like the, the one trillion dollar infrastructure bill, which there does appear to be bipartisan consensus. So that's going to get through. Although Nancy Pelosi is holding it hostage for the 3.5 trillion welfare bill. So it's, it's passed the Senate. The infrastructure passed the Senate. They throw it over the House. She's like, I won't schedule a House vote on that until the House and the Senate approve the 3.5 trillion. Well, they're having problems with that because, uh, you know, Kirsten Sinema, uh, Joe Manchin, um, and, and some others, they say they're the two front people on the Democrat side, but there are others who are concerned about it. Uh, that's becoming more unpopular by this. Let's see what happens. But even if the trillion dollars goes through, it's only about, uh, $270 billion of what you and I would call infrastructure. So yeah, bridges, tunnels, roads, airports, you know, stoplights. That's infrastructure. Everybody agrees on that. Everybody wants that, and it can be very productive spending. But uh, three quarters of it is, you know, human infrastructure. Like, let's pay for daycare so people can, so construction workers to go to work. That's infrastructure. Well, you can debate daycare, but that's not what most people think of as infrastructure. Um, so, um, and it's it's a good. It's actually real infrastructure is a good use of funds, but the payoff is ten years. Yeah. You, you you make an airport better, okay? That's that's a good thing. You got to fly places or highways or whatever. But the payoff is ten years. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but don't expect that to stimulate anything in the next ten months. Um, and as far as the three point five trillion, that's just um, that's the culmination. That's FDR's New Deal, LBJ's Great Society, and Nancy Pelosi's you know finishing touches. Uh, we're going to permanently have cradle to grave support. You know, Zuckerberg has, has said this. He gave a speech at Harvard a couple of years ago on guaranteed basic income. He said, basically, you know, with automation, and we, we're not going to have work for people to do, so we ought to just give them some money so they don't riot. I mean, I guess <laughs> riot in the streets. Um, but I, which I, I think is uh, horrible. I think, I think it's just a, a really a despicable approach to human talent. But that 
don't underestimate the extent to which that is mainstream thinking right now. So, so you got to push back against that. And that's what, you know, the, the 2022 elections might be set up to do that. So no, I build back better as a slogan. Um, they're not, there are things government can spend money on that do add productivity. They are, but that's not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, reset would be the right word. I don't know if great is the right word to use in front of it, particularly if you're uh, not a socialist. Uh, there's um, my political comment of the day. Uh, not that it's going to change anything. Bert from Fort Myers. Here's the number one question, Jim. Um, Jim, Jim, can you comment on China increasing their gold reserves, opening its gold window in Shanghai? Is it similar to the one Nixon closed in 71? Um, and there's some follow-up to that. Yeah, uh, well, of course, China is increasing their gold reserves. They've approximately tripled them in the last uh, 12 years. So between 2009 and 2021, they've gone from 600 metric tons to uh, just under 2,000 metric tons um, that they admit. Now, China is completely non-transparent about this, but they'll go three years, four years, no increase, just the same print every month, and then, boom, uh, here's 500 tons. Well, I know a lot about the gold market. You can't buy 500 tons. I mean, <laughs> call, call Goldman Sachs, call you know, uh, HSBC. They're the, well, I'll bite my tongue, but, uh, but um, you, you can't fill an order like that. You can't fill an order for 50 tons. So what it means is that they've been buying it all along, uh, and then they just feel like disclosing it. They have a, a sovereign wealth fund called the State Administration for Foreign Exchange, which is run by was run by an ex-PEMCO guy, completely non-transparent. That's where they keep the gold off the books. And then every now and then, meaning every several years, they'll flip it over to the People's Bank of China and publicize it as an increase in you know 200 tons or whatever. But they're buying it all along. So we don't actually know. But assuming they've continued to do that, which I, I'm, I'm certain they have, uh, they have uh, at least several hundred tons, perhaps you know 500 to 1,000 tons off the book. So let's give China, let's put them up at the, you know, 3,000 plus level. Russia is much more transparent. They they have, uh, they publish every month, so we know exactly what they're doing. Eliana uh, Bielina is my favorite central banker. She's the only one who seems to know what the job requires. Um, the one that shocked me, I was actually writing an article on, on Russia and gold uh, yesterday, and, you know, just kind of freshened up the research. And the one that just, I almost fell off my chair was Japan added uh, 80 tons. Hmm. Uh, I was like, what? They, they haven't bought, <laughs> no, seriously, they haven't bought gold in decades. Like, go back to, the, the, the timeline's at zero. For they bought years. everything else, Jim. They just got to well, change it up a I bit. <laughs> well, so I, so I, I said, by kind of going to the China thing, I said, you can't, you can't fill 80 tons. Like, what's up with this? So I looked at it, and what it said, kind of like China, it was an internal accounting entry between accounting, accounting within the Ministry of Finance. Ah. Okay. But so they didn't they didn't go out and buy the market. But it means that they have hidden gold. Yeah. It means oh, yeah. that they've got gold. They're not but but then so okay, second derivative, why now? You've had the hidden gold, okay. Uh separate account in the Ministry of Finance, non transparent, okay. You made the accounting entries, you put it on in your reserve position and you know, World Gold Council reports it, IMF reports it. Why now? Yeah, well, well, I- well uh, okay, well what it tells me is that uh uh at, People are losing confidence in the United States. This goes right to Afghanistan. And just to, okay, I'll, ah, I'll, I'll digress a little more and come back. So Eric Prince is doing an interview with Tucker Carlson a couple of days ago. And Eric Prince is, you know, former Navy SEAL, also has his own army, created his own army. That's that's a statement. Very few people know more about Afghanistan than he does. So I'm paying attention because I'm following the Afghanistan story. And in the middle of it, he says, and by the way, this is the beginning of the end of the dollars or reserve currency because people have now lost confidence in the United States. We've humiliated ourselves. We surrendered. We retreated and it was a, and, and took casualties in a retreat, which even Lee didn't do at Gettysburg. Um, and by the way, there are only a handful of people, like maybe five people in the world who can pivot from geopolitics to international monetary economics without taking a beat. Just can, they get good people on both sides, you know, David Rosenberg. And, Lacey Hunt on economics and, you know, a lot of good people on the geopolitical side. But the number of people who can go from one to the other to just like that is a really short list. Eric Prince is, is one of them. And, um, and, 
because I get into this debate all the time because people go, the gold bugs go, well, there's nothing backing the dollar. There's nothing backing up the dollar. Uh, and then the anti-Bitcoin people, there's nothing backing up Bitcoin. Well, I can say the same thing about gold. There's nothing backing up gold. I mean, it's physical. It's tangible. You can touch tangible. You can touch it. Atomic number 79. But um, there's nothing else behind the gold. And what I say is they're all backed by the same thing. Dollars, euros, gold, Bitcoin, anything else you want to mention. They're all backed by the same thing, which is confidence. If you have, if I tender you some money for goods or services, and you're confident that it's money, and furthermore, you're confident that you can turn around and tender it to somebody else for your own goods and services, then it's money. It doesn't matter what it is. But here's the here's the caveat: confidence is fragile. It's yep. easily lost, and it's impossible to regain. And the point that Eric Prince was making is, if you have confidence in the dollar, what's behind that? Again, let's do the second derivative. What's behind it? Well. 10 aircraft carrier, uh, you know, uh, battle groups might be a good start. Uh, and if we're now eroding that, if we're not destroying that, which we are, you can see confidence in the dollar wane very quickly. And then I see our friends in Japan print, you know, 80 tons of gold out of thin air. Well, it wasn't thin air, it was the counting entry. But why are they doing that? Well, it's because they're talking to Taiwan about mutual defense. If you're China and you want to invade Taiwan, why stop there? Why not keep going to Japan if the U.S. doesn't have your back? So that's where this whole Afghanistan thing has implications that very few people can really comprehend. Well, very few people can connect the dots like you just did from the dollar to Afghanistan to what Prince said. So awesome job on that. The rest of this question actually implies, I think it gets to that point. Um, so I'll just ask the follow up, which is, you know, the Chinese doing this, allowing its currency to float against gold to give is, is it to give confidence to other countries that want to sell oil and other commodities in the Chinese currency? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, China is not anywhere close to having uh, enough gold for gold-backed currency. They are acquiring gold, granted, but their gold as a, as a percentage of their total reserves is uh, 2%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want a good uh, trivia question, you're going to borrow something like that, ask someone to tell you what percentage of the U.S. reserve position is in gold. The answer is 74%. You know, for all the trash talk coming out of the Fed, now gold's not money. 74% of U.S. reserves are in gold. And similarly high percentages for uh, for Germany and France. And Russia's getting there. Russia's up to 20%. But China's like 2%, maybe a little bit higher, um, because they've got a $4 trillion reserve position and, you know, not that much gold. So, um, and the other problem with the, you know, the, the digital yuan or the gold back yuan, you, know, you hear about this all the time, great reset conversation. They have no rule of law. Why would you, why would you want a, a, a dime's worth of yuan if there's no rule of law, if it's what they say it is, if there's no recourse, there's no courts, there's no checks and balances, etc. There's no enforceability, nothing. Uh, and you'll never have a bond market. You'll never have a, I mean, there's a small one, but you'll never get a, a robust Chinese, uh, government bond market with, uh, you know, across the yield curve and primary dealers and repos and when issued trading and, the settlement and clearance and, uh, and, you know, bankruptcy exam, all those things we've, we've spent a hundred years building up in the United States or get back to Howell in 230 plus years. Um, you can't pull that out of thin air. It, it, it would take, it, it would take 10 years at a minimum if they were willing to throw off the Communist Party, which they're not. So, so they're not even close to that. Um, the digital yuan is all about totalitarian control within China. I mean, they got cameras everywhere biometrics everywhere, facial recognition software everywhere, um, social credit scores, you know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would be right at home there. But, uh, the, but, but the point is, uh, if there's no more cash, uh, by the way, I'm giving a, uh, a speech in uh, Hillsdale College. Uh, I told my uh, business manager, I, I got the invitation from Hillsdale College. I was very uh, uh, honored. And I said, you know, this is the new Harvard. And she was a little skeptical about it. I said, well, it really is. It's where all the big brains are going. It's kind of like a um, like an outlet show kind of thing, but uh, but the other the other keynote invitee is uh, JD Vance, so I'm going to get on a day early to look, look forward to, to meeting him. But my topic is the cashless society, so I've been spending a lot of time on this. But the minute you go cashless, then everything's digital by definition, which means you can track. They're already tracking your whereabouts with your iPhone or your Samsung, or whatever. But um, you know, every purchase, everything you do online, retail, in-store, physical premise, whatever, it's a it's a surveillance technique and a social uh, a gauge of socially, are you doing things that are contrary to your interests of the Communist Party? So now I don't see China as a global reserve currency. 
they don't have enough gold to be backed by gold. Are they are they trying to get the Iranians and Saudis to take some yuan for oil? Yeah, and there's a little bit of that. But what are you going to do with the yuan? You know, I mean, you want to invest in China? I wouldn't put a nickel in China. I mean, they're they're um, I mean, they're communists. That when we start there, but uh, what you know, Jack Jack Ma, I call him, you know, Jack in the Box. I mean, he's he's missing. He's in that box. We don't know where he's under kind of some kind of house arrest. Uh, what they did, what they did to DD, they're basically you know, Gary Gensler's taking years to force Chinese companies to delist in the New York Stock Exchange because they're not transparent. China may do it for them. China's saying, no, you guys got to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which isn't the Hong Kong I knew when I first went there in 1980. That's a that's a totally Lockdown communist society. And I, 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 it's funny. I've been back to Hong Kong many times over the last 40 years. Every time I went, it got a little less free and a little less boisterous than the time before. And then I gave a speech there in uh, May 2019. Uh, and it was Asia Society, you know, uh, former head of the IMF. It was a pretty high level crowd. And somebody took me aside and kind of leaned in and said, be careful what you say. Uh, and I right. wasn't, I said what I always say, but, but I was like, okay, okay, now you've gone all, this is before the, the clampdown that we've seen in the last year. Uh, so I said, okay, this is, this is over. It's been dying for a long time, but when people actually have to warn you to be careful what you say in public, uh, you know that they're just, you might as well be in Beijing. So, uh, but China doesn't, are they destroying value? Of course they are. Um, but who owns the value? It's Chinese oligarchs and U.S. investors, U.S. index investors, right? So what do they care? What does the Communist Party of China care if they destroy an oligarch or hurt U.S. investors? They probably favor that, right? They're not handmaidens of the markets the way they are in the U.S. So uh, so why would you own Chinese stocks? I don't. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. And I'm not getting an invitation to speak in China. And I think after you just said that, you're not going to get one either. Well, uh, I have. A, I, I actually got I actually got a 10 year multi-visit, unlimited stay, unlimited activity visa. It's like the, the hardest visa. Yeah, I got one, but I can't use it. I'll probably be uh, arrested when I get off the plane. Yeah, yeah, that's nuts. Um, all right, we're, we're, we've basically run out of time, but I got to ask you this question because it's got a lot of votes and people ask it a lot. And I, I just like what you called it, so I just I want to ask it as the final question uh, from Mike. Uh, Jim, is your Ice Nine prediction still uh, in play, or, or are we past that? No, it's still in play. Um, and just I'll, I'll be really brief. Ice Nine is uh, I nicked it from Kurt Vonnegut, who used it in his novel cat's cradle which i highly recommend hilarious it's a black black comedy in the early 60s at a time when we were all worried about the world being blown up by nuclear weapons but the idea was that a physicist invented ice nine which is an isotope of water and uh it's frozen at what we call room temperature but if a molecule of ice nine comes in contact with a molecule of water the water turns to ice nine so if you poured a vial into it into a stream the stream would freeze, the sound would freeze, the ocean would freeze, the world would freeze, and life on Earth would, would come to an end. Um, so that's what Ice Nine is. But I took that idea and applied it to financial markets and said, you can't shut down one market because, you know, I mean, FDR had a bank holiday in 1933, but people don't remember that. He shut every bank in America by executive order. Mm. Every bank in America by executive order shut and didn't say when he was going to reopen them. They were reopened about a week later, but he didn't say that at the time. But the point is, if you if you freeze money market funds, you say, okay, we've got to run on money market funds. Nobody can redeem money market funds until further notice. And you can do that. Um, then they're going to go to the banks. They're going to give me, give me my money out of the bank. Well, then they're going to have to freeze withdrawals uh, from deposits. Then they're going to go to the stocks and sell stocks um, because uh, people want the cash. And they're going to have to shut the stock market. So the point is, you can't. Uh, freeze one section of the markets without freezing all of them because investors will just pivot from one to the other to the next the same way the ice nine molecule until you have to shut down everything. And the big, I talked about this in chapter one of my book, The Road to Ruin, uh, 2016, how, um, the biggest cog in the wheel, if you will, is, uh, is BlackRock. Uh, and BlackRock's not a bank. And it, uh, barely, barely avoided being regulated as a uh, systemically important financial institution coming out of Dodd-Frank. But don't think that the lobbying associated with that wasn't, uh, you know, uh, it took it taken to an unheard of level. Uh, you know, Larry Fink gets touted as uh, Secretary of the Treasury. But um, 
rest assured that uh, if you get into the kind of scenario we just described, that there'll be a phone call to BlackRock and say, you've got to freeze everybody. Hmm. You can't sell. You can't sell. Now, that that is uh, only going to come from Jim Rickards. That's, that's uh, again, thank you. Just, just thanks for, thank you. I don't think people use those two words enough in this day and age. I don't think people have good balanced conversations about reality. Uh, they're so triggered by so many different things. But for me, it's always an education. So I want to thank you for that. And uh and looking forward to, to chatting with you next time. Thank you, Keith. He's the one and only Jim Rickards. I hope you learned a lot. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.